Genesis 3, 8 through 13. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would take this, your inerrant, holy, inspired word, and would you, by your spirit, focus it right to all of our hearts, including the one who preaches, that the authority and the power and the love that you have for us through your word would come through and that we would see more clearly the person and work of your son, our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. I have a great privilege that in my household, I live with a bunch of females. And that has exposed me to something of which I would, might not have ever been exposed, the chick flick. Now I must confess, even if it makes me snobby, I prefer Jane Austen to the Hallmark Channel. But I'm fascinated with Jane Austen because of the command of the English language that she had and that she put in the mouths of her characters, that they were able to illustrate with language exactly what was going on in their souls. America, we tend to be very crass and bottom line, and therefore we tend to be very vague. We like the emotional impact. We don't like content, it seems like. But Jane Austen shows us that we can have both content and impact. And I would challenge you to improve your language through the much reading of books, as one of her characters said. Improve her, your mind with reading many books and learning to improve your speaking skills. Not saying that about anybody. I'm talking about me too, because I've noticed that. I want to be passionate and have impact. But let's learn how to use words. Words are very important, extremely important in God's world. In the 1996 portrayal of Jane Austen's novel, Emma, starring Gwyneth Paltrow as Emma. Emma Woodhouse, a 21-year-old, beautiful, clever, intelligent, rich, and spoiled young lady. Had everything a woman her age could want to have when they're young and foolish. Not all of them are young and foolish, but many of them are. Her mother died early in her life, and her father was an aging hypochondriac that looked to her to take care of him rather than the other way around. She ended up busying herself playing matchmaker with her friends, but her friends always were people that were lower than her in terms of class and accomplishment. She basked in the glory of giving her sage wisdom to those friends and matching them with men she thought that they were worthy of. Many times they weren't in the eyes of British society at that time. If there is one man whose good opinion she craves, a family friend by the name of Mr. George Knightley. I think of all of English and American literature, Mr. George Knightley is my hero. He is the model of manhood outside the Bible that I'd like to approximate myself. 
Now, if you haven't seen Emma or read Emma, I'm sorry, this is a spoiler alert. The turning point for Emma in the movie is after she badly and publicly shames a poor woman who, yes, is very socially awkward, you might even say, right on there on the edge of ridiculousness. But she embarrasses her publicly, and her belittlement of Miss Bates is the context for this scene. I'm just going to give you two lines. Particularly, we're going to focus on Mr. Knightley's speech, where Mr. Knightley defends Miss Bates' dignity and rebukes Emma for her lack of propriety. So Emma says, I know there is no better creature in all the world, but you must allow that blended alongside of the good, there is an equal amount of ridiculousness in her. Mr. Knightley responds, Were she a prosperous woman equal to you in situation, I would not quarrel about any liberties of manner. But she is poor, and even more so than when she was born. And should she live to be an old lady, she would sink further still. Her situation being in every way below you should secure your compassion. Badly done, Emma. Badly done. She watched you grow from a time when her notice of you were an honor to this. Humbling her and laughing at her in front of people who would be guided by your treatment of her. It is not pleasant for me to say these things, but I must tell you the truth. Proving myself your friend by the most faithful counsel. Trusting that sometime you will do my faith in you greater justice. While I can, than you do now. Emma experiences no pain greater than that which comes from these words from Mr. Knightley. Words have weight. And we must use them truthfully and for good. Even if we have to live out what Mr. Knightley does here, the words of Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Those wounds are Mr. Knightley's way of giving Emma space to change and telling her, just listen to yourself. You are not what you should be. It's calling her to a higher standard, which up until that moment, she was too spoiled, too lazy, and too rich to live up to, and too prideful, therefore. Adam's, and by extension, all of our defiance against the Lord. So, in this passage, we see that the creator-creature distinction shows, and centrally, the Lord is showing us here that he creates space, but Adam and we, our natural inclination is to save face. So what does the Lord want Adam and by extension us to do? He wants Adam to admit he sinned and turn to him for help. That's why we see the Lord walking and seeking and inquiring and waiting. First of all, walking. Verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This is the Lord's graciousness. Lao Tzu, he's a Chinese philosopher, said this. The journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. And I remember when I got on a plane one time and looked at the plane's magazine there in a the little pocket, and there was an advertisement for Johnny Walker, Scotch bourbon whiskey. But the advertisement used that quote and said, it said underneath it, keep walking, which is their little slogan. Think about, if you would, like a memory reel of a movie, the gladness of the Lord, first in creating Adam in verse 7 of chapter 2, breathing into his nostrils the breath of life. 
where Adam could have joy in his identity, chapter 1, verse 27, that he is the image bearer of God. There is no higher dignity a creature could have. Where does that joy come from? In 124, God is discussing in an inter-Trinitarian council, let us make a man in our image. There's no other creature created by God in which God has this kind of discussion. He does it again with Eve later as, as that verse is kind of expanded in chapter two, where we see more of the particulars. And what we see here in that breathing into Adam is that Adam's identity and his purpose is wrapped up in God's breathing into him. And then the Lord leads Adam to the garden in chapter two, verse 15. Remember, there was no man to work the garden. That's why no tree of the field or shrubbery or anything had grown. The key ingredient for that was to have a man there. It is the man's glory to work and to keep the garden. God is actually sharing his glory with us, even though he is a God who will not share with another in certain contexts, but obviously in other contexts he does. That Adam would be a glory reflection of the Lord's glory himself. Not a center of glory, but a reflection putting on display the Lord's glory, making more of the garden than what it was to begin with. And then leading Adam through the garden. Can you see this? In like a memory reel of a movie, leading Adam through a garden in joy saying, look at all these trees. You may eat from every one of them. Every one of them. All the good fruit. The expansiveness of, of God wanting to see his glory continue to multiply exponentially throughout the earth. But what does Adam do here in this passage? When confronted by the Lord, he had lived through that experience of the Lord walking him through the garden. But what does he do? Self-protection. Now, why am I only dealing with Adam when it was both he and Eve, and of course Eve was the first one to break God's command? Well, because the word you here, when God says, where are you in verse nine, is in the second person masculine singular. In Hebrew, there are gendered words. He is dealing with Adam, even though both of them sinned because of the headship principle that we have talked about. How headship was turned upside down. Adam, notice he didn't lead his wife away from the tree. He followed her lead. He shouldn't have followed her lead. He should have led. He didn't step up. And what does he do now? He runs away. Why? Because there was a real threat that the Lord made, right? Chapter two, verse 17. The day you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Funny thing is, is Adam's not dead yet. Adam believed the satanic lies of chapter three, verses four and five, where Satan so doubt that he could not be trusted. His word could not be trusted. I want to emphasize his word. You will not surely die, Satan says, brazenly opposite of what God said. And then he said to, to Adam and Eve, God hates competition. He sets them in opposition to one another. In, in verse five, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, determining for yourself good and evil. That's what it means, knowing good and evil. You get to define it, not God anymore. 
I mean, Adam named this animal that's talking to them. He should know that he has dominion over this animal. And what does he do? He runs and he hides. He hides among the trees. Why does he hide? Man, if I just have a little more time, I might be able to figure my way out of this. Looking for his own self-salvation. He's wanting to know what his next move is. But then we see God seeking in verse 9. Notice how verse 9 starts with the word but. That is a radical cut. Adam runs and hides, but the Lord keeps seeking. He keeps walking. He's moving toward his offender. Regardless of what Adam does, God calls out, where are you? Now, why is God asking that? Is he looking for information or insight? Well, God doesn't need insight himself, and he certainly doesn't need the information, but he is looking for insight on the part of Adam. Just listen to yourself, Adam. Verse 10, Adam's words clarify his actions. I was aware of your presence underneath that, and I hated it. You drove me into these threes. You threatened me. Now think of the memory reel of the movie we went through, The Joy of God, how expansive it was, and what do Adam's actions and now his words tell you about what he thinks about the Lord? Instead of life, now the trees are protection from the fear of death. Instead of expansion and freedom, the trees are limited to hiding behind. Instead of freedom and glory in nakedness, chapter 225, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now nakedness leads to fear of death again and hiding, not only from God, but between the man and his wife himself, themselves in that pathetic attempt to cover up vulnerability with fig leaves, things that would wither and die. God wants Adam to see, this is what you're saying about me and about yourself. Just listen to yourself. You used to be able to, to walk and talk with me and be close to me. I taught you everything. Look at chapter two, verse 15, he leads them to work and to keep. And then in verse 19, at the end of verse 19 of chapter two, the Lord brought all these animals to Adam to see what he would call them. Giving Adam space to be what Adam was created to be. A reflection of the Lord's glory. That Adam himself would name it. And whatever Adam named it, that was his name. God did not second guess Adam. He let him name them. That's Adam's glory. So he was free, but now what is he doing? He's running away, using the very breath that God gave him in chapter two, verse seven, and hiding. Yes, it was a threat, but God can say, even now, I'm not only that. I'm not just that threat. Because you're still alive, Adam. See, God wants to lead him right to that point where he is afraid and ashamed. Why? Because he wants to deal with reality. It was a real threat. But Adam's still alive. Is this an empty threat? 
This is not on your sheet, but in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, we could add here, or his threats, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So you're in the same place as Adam right now. Whether you know Jesus or whether you don't know Jesus, whether you hate God's presence and truth or you don't, you're still breathing. You still have this opportunity because God is still walking. And fear is the right response to a threat, isn't it? When the threat can be credibly carried out. So the main idea is that the creator-creature distinction here clearly shows Adam's and our defiance against the Lord. But our natural response is even if the Lord creates space, we want to save face. We want to build our own righteousness up. What should we do? What does the Lord want Adam to do? Admit he sinned and turned to him for help? That's why we see the Lord walking and seeking Adam out. And then after that, he's drilling down now in the inquiring and the waiting. First of all, the inquiring. Inquiring further and waiting for a response. For Adam to just listen to himself. Inquiring as the man confessed that he was afraid because he was naked. And listen to what emphasis God puts on words and the words we take in. Who told you you were naked? The Lord knows he doesn't need the information here, but he wants to get Adam to listen to how deceptively foreign this saving face world that he's created for himself. Satan lied to him. John 8, 44, Jesus is talking about Satan, talking about the people challenging him. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan used the gift of speech in the mouth of an animal made from the ground. Chapter two, verse 19. Adam was made from the dust of the ground, but God gave Adam his breath in the way God was saying, Adam, you're my boy. Then God asked, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you explicitly with my words not to eat? You disregarded my command, which I gave you directly. This is defiance. You misled my gift to you, your wife. You misled by not leading, by not stepping up. And so God inquires and drills down, but there's a waiting. Okay, Adam, I'm giving you another chance. Listen to yourself. And Adam still tries to save face. Do you see how patient the Lord is here? What does he do? Blame shifts. Does this not sound like our culture today? The problem's not in here. It's my parents. It's, it's the patriarchy. It's, the, it's, it's, it's all this oppression coming from people in power. That's why I'm in the state I'm in. No, the problem ultimately is in here. If you do not start here, 
I don't care if you can throw off the paper. That's why these people have no vision of what to do next. None, because there is none. You can throw off the patriarchy, go against God's design of how men and women are to relate. It's not going to do you any good because it's lies. So Adam says, and by the way, is Adam's problem that he's predatory here? No. Adam's problem is that he's not patriarchal enough. What does Adam do? He, he glories in this passivity. The woman, not me, the woman. And by the way, the woman you gave me. I mean, if you want to make this equation, take her out of the equation, none of this happens. See, the problem is, is way outside me. It's in you, God. And the woman, of course, she's partially right. She was deceived. Paul even says that. But her immediate response, she has no other example. Her husband already lays it out for her of just blame shifting and ultimately blaming God. So here's the conclusion. Just listen to yourself. The Lord creates space, and this is sobering. What do you say to the Lord? Have you ever feared him? I mean, really feared the Lord. When the Bible talks about fearing the Lord, partially, yes, we always want to translate, yes, we need to respect him. But that's kind of shaving it down. You need to fear. The Lord is your worst enemy. What does Jesus say? Do not fear him who can kill the body, but fear him who can throw the body and the soul into hell forever. There's your enemy. Satan's not even your worst enemy. But here's the deal. If you do not come to grips with your fear of the Lord, then you're taking his word very lightly, which is another way of taking his name in vain. And what does Adam do? He saves face. He's right to fear God, but he messed it all up because it really was all on him. Eve shouldn't have even been a factor. He should have stepped up. The Lord could have redeemed her even if he couldn't catch her in time. Adam was wrong to only fear God, though. Because if you only fear God, then you'll hate him. Fear could have led to loving God even more because what do you do when you're cornered? You beg for mercy. And by the way, God is very quick. He wants to deliver. That's what he wants in this situation is to deliver Adam, to deliver us from this present evil age, this present darkness. Look, God is saying in Isaiah 118, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Just as you are, come to Jesus in all your shame. You are never too far away to come. Despair, not because of your fear of the, God, of the Lord. Despair, because you have no hope, but it's only, your only hope is in him. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Mr. Knightley, with his faithful wounds of a friend, is what the Lord is also doing here on a much more grand scale. 
Hebrews 4 tells us that the word of God lays us bare, naked, and exposed, that we believe in lies until we know the one who is the truth. And Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In his shed blood on the cross, taking your wrath so that you might have the blessing of fellowship restored with you to God. God keeps walking and seeking. He's also going to keep inquiring and waiting, giving you the grace to listen to yourself and turn to see his face as he saves you in his face of grace in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, help us to take advantage of the moments we have to turn to you for help, to know that we are so wrong, that our sinful self is our only shame, our glory, only the cross. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.